Good morning, Revolution. How are you? I am well. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you all. I'm going to go ahead so I don't forget and dismiss the kids to Revolution Kids Church. And if there's any little peeps that want to go upstairs, go left. There we go. Okay. Well, we are doing a two-part mini-series this week and next week. And Daryl picked the topic, and it is on the parable of the prodigal son. So I'm focusing on the younger brother. Daryl's going to focus on the older brother next week, and I have no clue where he's going with his. So y'all could come in, and it would sound like a completely different story next week. And that's the fun thing about parables, is there's so many ways to interpret them. It's kind of like um, nailing jello to a tree. Like, useless. There's no reason. You shouldn't. So, okay. We're going to start right off with our main chunk of Scripture today. We're going to start in Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. Um, Feel free to read with me or just listen. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he went off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly! Bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now that's not the end of the parable, but I'm going to stop right there for now. Because there's a lot already in that that we need to talk about. First of all, I am going to refer to this parable as the parable of the lost son. Uh, The word prodigal sounds really cool, Um, but it means, it kind of gives a quick summary of that younger son, what he did when he was off. It means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Kind of similar to the way when they said he lost all his money with dissolute living. That tells us a lot. That tells us that he 
was living in a way that lacked restraint, uh, indulgence in things that people would see as vices. So you can think of things that people see as vices, alcohol. Kids in the room, but you get it. But some synonyms for dissolute living that I thought kind of helped bring this character to life were corrupt, degenerate, depraved, demoralized, and my favorite, reprobate. So we get it. I think we've heard prodigal son so often that we hear it and we think, oh, that's the guy that realized he was wrong and he went back. It doesn't quite capture the whole essence. But I don't want to focus too much on what he did when he was gone. We get those details. But we have to back up some so we can get the whole story. If you go back to the very beginning of chapter 15, and I think, oh, the very first part of this, uh, chapter 11, it said, then Jesus said. That's how it started. That's a really weird way to start a story. So you think, well, he was doing something before this. What was he doing? Well, if you look, he was telling more parables. If you look again, he was telling other ones. If you look all the way back to the beginning of chapter 15, he was having lunch with some friends. And it's, uh, let's see, go all the way back to verse 1. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, those words that the Pharisees used to talk about Jesus' friends and his lunchmates are extremely important. As we probably know, tax collectors are not thought of very nicely. So they were more than likely Jewish people, and the land that they lived in was occupied by Rome. And if you were a tax collector, you were a, a citizen of an occupied nation being employed by that occupying government. They were seen as traitors. And to be called a sinner, that's not like how we use it today. We're all sinners, right? Yeah. So the Pharisees would have looked at sin as a communal act, something that fractured the welfare of the whole community. Your individual sin affected everyone. Sin is not just seen as affecting the individual, but the entire nation of Israel. So for them, it's not enough just to have a way to restore your purity to be able to go to the temple Sin is something that is connected to the entire people being found pure or impure by God. We don't really have that kind of thought process connected to sin, but I think we can understand the concept of how community can get polluted, community can get fractured. So Jesus sitting and eating which would be taken as Jesus giving his approval to these people. That the Pharisees are looking at and saying, wait, these are traitors and these are people who are, are threatening 
our favor with God, our, our covenant with God is going to be threatened again. So Jesus hears them grumbling, and I love the fact that his reply, his comeback, is to just start telling stories. And the first parable of the three that he tells is the parable of the lost sheep. And that's where Jesus specifically turns to them and says, basically, well, if you had a hundred sheep and one went missing, wouldn't you leave one? To go or leave the 99 to go find the one. Of course you would. And when you found him, you would rejoice and you'd gather your friends and your family. And, and, and it would, you would be so happy. And then he says this mention about one repentant sinner being a greater source of joy in heaven than 99 righteous persons who have no need for repentance. Then he immediately goes into the parable of the lost coin. And that's saying, I mean, if you had ten coins and then one day you realized you actually only have nine, aren't you going to look everywhere for that one? You're not going to stop looking until you find it once you realize it's gone. You're going to look and you're going to look and you're going to look. And then when you find it, you're going to go tell your neighbors that you found it. And you're going to throw a party because you found it. Then he mentions again a statement about joy among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now the parts about repentance, we hear that today and we're like, yeah, of course. You know, We're the sheep, we're lost, God finds us, we're saved. But it doesn't, to me, it doesn't quite fit the story. It's kind of weird, it stands out. The sheep didn't repent. Sheep is a sheep. The sheep wandered off. The coin, the coin didn't repent. It doesn't say anything about the coin saying, I'm so sorry, I ran off, I was wrong. The coin is a coin. But I think what it does say, and what both stories do say, is that Counting things, recognizing loss, recognizing that something is missing, something's not quite right. And the important part, doing something about it. He noticed one sheep was gone. He went to look for it. She noticed one coin was gone. She did something. She went to find it. Counting matters. Paying attention to who is here matters. And I don't, I do mean, but not just the fact that Daryl took the night off or the day off, that Rachel's on vacation. I also mean the person that you haven't seen here in a month. I even mean the people that we know are gone and we still miss them dearly. Those are important things to notice, and they're necessary things to notice. But I also mean, when you look in this room, who isn't here? What kind of people aren't here, and we don't 
miss them. We don't expect them to be here. What kind of groups of people, what class of people aren't here? And I don't necessarily mean in these walls, but if we are envisioning the kingdom of God, are we actually including everyone in that? Or are there people that you would never expect to see show up? You would be shocked to see them show up here because you never would have thought that they would become part of the kingdom of God. So asking what's missing, I think that's the point of these two parables. Recognizing what is not there. Who isn't here? Who do you know that doesn't see themselves as needed in a community or needing community? Who do we forget to see? Who do we fail to miss at this table here? And the biggest question that these ask, what are we going to do about it? We're in a position where we have a lot of loss that has happened as a church. We have a lot of loss and a lot of heartbreak and a lot of hurt as individuals. We have wounds to heal. We have dreams to dream, but we also have people to reach. And I don't have the answer, but what are we going to do about who is not here. And I don't mean try and get our friends back. I don't mean try and make up for what we miss. More of how do we not miss the opportunity to invite, to expand what revolution is? How do we pay attention to the world in such a way that we can be that revolution of transforming lives, regardless of if they ever come into this building. So I think that's the point. Repentance can come, and repentance is important. Do not think I'm saying, there's no need for repentance, it's fine. I know. It is important, and it can come later. It should come later, but it doesn't happen without the invitation, without the welcoming to the table. That has to come first. And I think that's the point of the third story that Jesus tells right after the coin of the parable of the lost son. Now, in that story, we don't know why he left. We don't know how long he was gone. We do know that he had money in the beginning and he spends it all and he ends up starving, caring for pigs, wishing to eat the slop that the pigs have. But he didn't get any. He says, and they gave him nothing. We do know that he finally has enough and he decides to go back to his father's house. But we don't see the word repentance anywhere in this story. We don't even see a genuine act of repentance in this story. 
The verse says, when he came to himself. Back in Luke chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus gives a description of what an outward sign of repentance could look like. It's not the only one. But he's talking about a town that didn't receive his miracles in such a favorable way. And he says, he's comparing them to another town. He says, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So there's an outward expression towards repentance. We don't see that here. And I'm not saying it's not there, but I think it can ask the question, is that the point? Does that matter? What if that lost son is just really hurting and just wants that hurting to stop? So he makes a plan to go back to his father's house. Whether he actually thinks that his father is going to say, yes, come be my servant and eat this bread and have plenty. Or he just wants the suffering to end. We don't know the condition of his heart, but that's the beautiful thing. I don't think it matters. Because while he was still far off, his dad runs to him. His dad probably doesn't even hear his speech of, I have sinned against you and against heaven, which is very similar to what Pharaoh says in Exodus when Pharaoh just wants the plagues to stop. He probably doesn't even hear it because he doesn't even say, oh, never mind. He just says, get this boy a robe, get him a ring, get him some sandals. He's too busy welcoming and pouring out grace and receiving his son. So instead of this being looked at as a story of one son's mistakes and his repentant return towards loving grace, what about if it's about mercy and grace for a broken community? This is a family that was broken, torn apart. What if it's unfathomable mercy and grace and love that invites us and welcomes us and then pours out all over us and then guides us towards repentance and change. I think maybe Jesus was telling the Pharisees, you're making this grace thing a little too complicated, which we also do. Rejoice in the mercy, rejoice in the grace and the love of your creator that is just there. And it does not depend on the condition of your heart meeting a certain point. If we happen to look at sin, and I'm saying that word so much, I just want to talk about sin. So if sin is communal, and it pollutes, and it spreads, and it fractures the community. I kind of think about that as, what if you knew that this, this gentleman here, this one that is not actually here, I'm not pointing to any of you all, but that this guy here, what if we knew that he beat his wife? We don't 
We don't stop. We don't say anything. She rarely comes to church. But he's here, and we love him. But we know that there's something in there. I think a secret like that can break community, can pollute community. And that's a very wild example of what I'm talking about with sin being communal. It's an individual act that causes repercussions in a community. So if we think of sin as communal and has the ability to pollute and fracture and take the community out of the, the holiness of God, then the opposite is true that also that the healing and the forgiveness and the prayers for forgiveness within that community should also be done together. And I would like to think that this story would, after you finish the story of the parable of the lost son, that it would end with them all three healing together and forgiving each other and doing better together. We don't know. But Jesus taught us how to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And there's a line in there that says, forgive us our debts or sins or trespasses, whichever I prefer trespasses because when everybody says it, you just, and I like that sound. But I think that wording is intentional and I think it gets missed. Because if we are only reading that as an individual talking to God, it could have easily said, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. But it doesn't. It says, forgive us our as we forgive those. Where is it in James it says, the path to healing, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you might be healed? I think the Pharisees have something right with sin being not just an individual thing. And if I think that, then the son's actions aren't as important to the story as what's done around them. So the story showed me a few things. Now, I think we as people, we tend to focus on the lost. We tend to focus on the loss of the people we miss in many contexts. But I also think we fail to recognize that it's possible to lose the one who stayed. I think the, the older brother gets a bad rap sometimes in this story. He doesn't come off sounding real nice and real gracious. But he was loyal. He stays with his dad. Even though his inheritance was given to this younger brother and it's gone. Now, it says he gets home from work and the party's already happening. And so now his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So this 
dad receives this lost, once was dead, is now alive again son, busy clothing him and rejoicing and having calves killed and hiring a DJ and got the sparkle disco ball going, but never sends anybody to get the younger son or the older son. He knows where he is. He never goes to share in this rejoicing with his son. So who, who is missing? That's important. But who's here? Who is here and feeling unseen or feeling unconsidered? Those are very important questions to ask in the context of our church, but also in the context of our homes, our families, our friendships, and just basic general interactions with the world. I know I do this a lot at home. Eleanor has a lot of needs right now. She's almost three on Friday. She was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes this summer. She's a lot. She'd be a lot without the diagnosis. She's a lot. And Olive is so good. She's 11, but it's beautiful. And I find myself assuming she's good. She's fine. But is she? Writing this and thinking about this, I'm taking her to Mammoth Cave tomorrow. We're going to ride horses, and it's just me and her, and we're spending the night at a weird little petting zoo, and it's going to be great. And it's midterms week. I still have like half a paper to write. I don't have time for this, but I have to have time for this. Who's missing? It's a very broad question. A really good practice when you read parables in the Bible is to pay attention to, in your head, where you find yourself in the story. Or if you don't find yourself in the story, why you don't. But if you read this specific story, I can imagine most of us can relate to one of the characters. I know that I am definitely the younger son with a little bit of the father mixed in now that I'm a parent. Definitely the younger son. And I think back to when I came to this community. And I think back to the condition of my heart back then. And honestly asking myself, was I repentant back then? Nope. Not even close. Not even close. I just wanted the hurting to stop. And I found a beautiful community that held me and helped me in that and make that change, that turn, that repentance happened after the welcoming. There's a time and a need for repentance. But it's not a requirement before you're welcome 
at this table behind me. Repentance is a continual process. Ash Wednesday, repent and believe the gospel. This is a process where we grow and we know things about ourselves and we learn to believe in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that means for God's will for our life and how we can behave and act on this earth. Repentance allows us to be made new, to be able to be used by God to get that glimpse of thy kingdom come. But yet, while we're all still far off, Jesus welcomes us. It's grace. Plain and simple, it's just grace. Now this whole story started because Jesus was welcoming the wrong people to dinner. They didn't like who he was having a meal with. But Jesus gets a lot more scandalous in the way that he embodies God's love and mercy and grace for us. I mean, if you think back, his last dinner party was extremely scandalous. He turns bread and wine into blood and body. He invites us all to come to a table exactly as we are, whether that's broken and bleeding, begging for pain to stop, joyful, perhaps a little numb and desensitized to what it means to approach this table. To come to the table here and remember who we are, children of God. That we are welcome to come to this table in order to remember who God is. This is an important thing that we do every week. Growing up as a, as a child in the church, this is my favorite part. Not because of the snack, but something about the ritual, the connection to far, far back past. I mean, this is something that has been done since Jesus said it himself. It takes on new meanings. But I think after you do it every Sunday, it just might become stand in the line, take your bread, dip it in the cup. Jesus loves me. I love Jesus. It's awesome. Which is fine. It's great. It's a wonderful message to take away from it. But it can be so much more if we take the time to approach this table as if it were our Father's house and we have just spent every bit of his money and we are broken and we are bleeding and we are starving he just offers us more than we could ever imagine 
Oh, gracious, merciful, scandalous God. We come to you in so many different ways. Humbled and maybe sad, rejoicing, hurting, full of doubt, full of questions, maybe numb, joyful, full of hope, or possibly hopeless. All because you ran to us while we are still so far off. Thank you does not seem to cut it. <laughs> like, it does not feel like enough, but it might just be the, all that we have. So God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks and praise for the welcoming, for that invitation to meet you here today and the opportunity to remember who you are with raw hearts, with all of our questions and hurts, everything that we bring with us, and you meet us there. God, we give you the praise that you are the one that does not give us what we deserve that gives us grace we could never earn. And the one who loves us far beyond measure. We give you our thanks and our praise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.